So we are in this series, We the Church, and Paul uses a metaphor in the book of Ephesians to describe the church. It's the temple. And just as a temple is built with lots of stones that are precisely cut and then assembled together to create a space for the, the, the presence of God, the church, it turns out, in the New Testament is now that temple. Each one of us is a kind of a stone that has been precisely cut and shaped and fashioned and then assembled together with the rest to create a community in which God uh, places His presence. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a special thing. And it's something that we're studying. Uh, and one of the first steps is to understand the, the, the cutting of the stones piece. This has to do with us as individuals. And Paul, in the very beginning of the book of Ephesians, describes the individual stone. And over the last three weeks, we've had the privilege of studying that together. Um, you've heard me say this, and this is a, a mantra. I want to keep saying this till I die, that uh, according to Ephesians 1, we are chosen, adopted, beloved, redeemed, and we added this last term, sealed, children of God. And that is the description of our identity. That's what's most true about us. And when you think of a stone being fashioned, it's that. It's, it's that stone understanding uh, its true identity. And each person, we, we, we come to this place where we understand, we learn, and we're trying to help each other understand our identity in Christ. And so one of our home groups over this last week um, as we finished that portion of Ephesians, um, they did a little artwork together, and I'm going to show you some of this. Um, so they, uh, they just sort of spent their evening, I guess, rather than talking as much and studying, they, were, they got out the art uh, tools, implements, and uh, made some great little art here. Chosen, adopted, beloved. Go to the next one, if you would. We're going to go through these fairly quickly. Beloved, and the next one. Um, known. This was neat. The person brought together Psalm 139. In Ephesians one through th- one uh, three through six, so we're known and chosen, and we're trying to we're trying to reclaim that word chosen. It's been such a word full of theological debate, but what it really means is that you're no accident to God, and we're trying to be reminded that this is the this is why this is there. The next one, if you would. By the way, I'm not going to this home group because I would never fit in artistically um, to this group. They're way too advanced for me. I am chosen by God. Next one. Um, it's kind of a wordle. This is looking forward to the rest of Ephesians, which is great. And the next one, um, this is beautiful. I'm not going to try to interpret it, but I, I could. Uh, I was a literature major, and you know, I could go on and on about everything about this, but um, I'm not. Next one, um, he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And then there's a little, as you can see, it says, ah, ye, in the bottom there. Excitement. Next, um, all, the, all the terms there. Next one. Um, the truest thing about you, you are a child of God. And the next one is the last one. Chosen, redeemed, adopted, sealed, beloved. Um, we're trying to remind each other that this is who we are in Christ. And the more that we understand and, and accept and believe our true identity, the more we will be able to navigate the tricky waters of this world and all the forces that buffet us and try to lay claim to us and want us to belong to them. Um, at the end of the day, this is, this is who we are. And that's what it means to sort of be cut into that stone and then placed in the church. Uh, and, and together, we're built together um, to be a temple uh, where God is present. And this is one of the great Ephesians themes. 
that the church is more than we realize it is. The church is much more than we often realize it is. And, and you know, you bring me to, we're still doing this bring your pastor to work thing. Again, some of you haven't brought me to work yet, or Andrew, the other Andrew. Bring me to work, bring us to work. You know, sometimes we go to these fancy workplaces and walk around, and, and it's hard not to feel like, wow, this is an amazing institution, and the church is kind of lame, you know? Some of us feel that way about the church. We have this low view of the church, that it's messy, it's complicated. And, and what Paul is doing is he's, he's elevating our conception of what the church is in this book of Ephesians. And it's almost, I, I'm trying to picture what it would be like. It'd be like you come to some dilapidated church building and it's all broken down and the roof is falling off. Maybe it's in the inner city and it's a storefront, you know, um, and it just looks tired and... And, and, and not very exciting. And imagine if you were to walk in the door, and somehow mysteriously you walk in the door, and you're like in one of those great European cathedrals all of a sudden. This is the journey that Paul has us on. It's like we enter through this thing that seems so messy and simple and insignificant, and as he takes us along, we discover that actually what's going on in the church is something with cosmic ramifications and on par with the creation of the universe itself. And so this is the journey that Paul has us on. Um, And so would you open with me to uh, Ephesians 1, and let's take a next um, sort of little leg of this journey towards understanding the grandeur and the the greatness of, of the church as God has intended. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll give one to you. First, first, excuse me, Ephesians 1, verse 15 really want you to be able to see the, the words, so don't be shy. Raise your hand. Um, we'll pass one to you. This is a Bible you can take home with you as well. Paul has been speaking in the first 14 verses about God's work in the past, the present, and the future to shape our identity. And now um, he offers a prayer for the Ephesians for us by extension and begins to move into this conceptualization of the church. Verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit, notice the Trinity in there, of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness 
of him who fills all in all. Now there's a lot going on in this text and let me briefly tell you what I'm not going to talk about today. In the very beginning, he commends them for their faith and their love and I would just say this is a great little shorthand of the Christian walk. Faith vertically upwards and love towards the saints horizontally. If we get out of whack on either one of those, then we're getting off balance. Faith and love. And then he has a petition for these beloved people of his. He says, uh, I pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you'd be enlightened so that you might know, and then you'll notice three things. He wants you to know three that the spirit of enlightenment would help you to know three things. The first one is hope, and he doesn't really talk much about it, and I think it's because he's already spent in verses 3 through 14 articulating what this hope is all about. It's all about being called, knowing that you're not an accident to God, but you belong to God. So the hope is resident in that knowledge. And then, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance? So the second one is, he wants you to know about your inheritance. And again, Paul has discussed this in verses 3 through 14, and so he doesn't spend much time on this concept of inheritance. Inheritance is, is what, we, what we receive upon death or when Christ returns. It's the being in the presence of God. The greatest thing about our inheritance is the presence of God. And we are, we are confident of that future reality when we experience God's presence through the Holy Spirit today. So we talked last week about that and about how important it is, it is for us to know and to see the work of the Spirit in our lives. So we've kind of already covered those two. And the third one then, he wants, us, he, he wants God to enlighten us so that we would know the, great, the immeasurable greatness of his power. That's the third one. So it's hope, inheritance, and power. And this is the one that we're going to talk about this morning, that we would know his power. And what we want to look at is how this power of God is in the church. The power of God is in the church. So expect great things. I want to talk about, answer three questions this morning. What kind of power? Who is it for? And what can be expected of it? What kind of power is this? Who is it for? And what can be expected of it? So the first question, what kind of power is this resident in the church that we're talking about. And Paul says, okay, well, let's look at the history of this power. What has this power done in the past? Well, it raised Jesus from the dead. So we have this power as it meets the problem of mortality. And you think about since the dawn of time, since the fall, if you will, people have been seeking to meet the problem of mortality, been pursuing immortality. We do it in all kinds of ways, making big towers like in the early part of Genesis and the Tower of Babel. We, we want to be known. We want to make a name for ourselves that lasts, uh, outlasts our death, right? Maybe more close to home. You watch people trying to accomplish this through their children. That if, I, if, I, if, if maybe I'm not happy with my life, I can get my children to live a life that I will be proud of and then my name will last on that. And then we have the wild kind of examples of this where we try to, you know, freeze dead bodies in case someday in the future we determine how to jumpstart them again, the cryogenics, you know, and, and we, can, we can bring a person back to life. There's this, this hunger for immortality. And this power, this is the only power that has demonstrated its ability to overcome that problem by raising Jesus Christ. That's the kind of power we're talking about. 
But not only did it raise Jesus Christ, this power seated Christ at the right hand of the Father. And here we have this power addressing the problem of governance. Ever since the dawn of time, we have had a problem with governance in our world. Right? Over and over. You see, it's, it's, it's a perpetual pursuit of that place uh, by power-hungry people where they're in ultimate authority. And so many of the problems that our world is uh, struggling with right now are a result of people pursuing power, trying to, to be the one who's on top, to be in the highest place, to be the governing authority. It's an endless stream. And yet it says in verse 21 that Jesus Christ, by this power, has been seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Can you think of any words to communicate this more? He's hitting all. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so this power has met the problem of governance. So it's met the problem of mortality. These are some of the great problems in our world, the problem of governance. And then thirdly, it's met the problem of chaos because Jesus, it says, has been so established that all things in verse 22 are put under his feet. Now that phrase, all things, refers to, the, to everything. It's a cosmic kind of uh, conception. The universe itself, it's all been put under the feet of Jesus Christ. And now I want you to think about what life was like for the person reading this letter. There was a lot of chaos. The cosmos, the world, was a scary place. You could be on, in a small boat on the river, the lake, and a storm would come up and threaten your very existence. You could wander outside of your little village and a lion could snatch you up and tear you to bits. You could be on the ocean and, you know, um, if, if, if the storm came up, you know, like Jonah goes overboard and he's sinking down and he believes he's sinking down it right into Sheol. So the world, the, the, the natural world was an awesome and a scary place for the people of Jesus' day and of, of Paul's day. And so for them to be told that this power is such that, that, that Jesus will be put in control of all that is a huge statement as to the, the nature, the kind of power we're talking about. Now, it's funny, isn't it? Because we're scared, they were scared of the world. We're scared for the world, right? We're, we're scared that we're going to ruin this world because we become so populous, we're so uh, powerful in what we can do. And, but I think that this point applies to us as well because, because the stewardship of Christ over the world addresses the, the chaos and the protection that we need but it also addresses the issue of failed stewardship, the one that we're dealing with so often right now. So the fact that Jesus has been elevated to this place addresses both of those, both protection and stewardship. So this is the nature of the power that has been placed, says, toward or for us, been given toward us and stewarded, placed in the church. Now we're working on a remodel of our house and... Um, was recently talking with our engineer who normally does uh, engineering work uh, beyond residential work. And I asked, um, so uh, what are some of the most exciting things that you've ever worked on? He said, well, I oversaw the foundation of the New Bay Bridge. 
And now there's a moment that happens right then when this is the person who's doing the engineering on your house, right? You suddenly think, our house should be fine, right? Right? Because this is a much smaller task than what this person has accomplished. Well, Paul is creating a similar moment for us right here. He's saying, look, this is the power that has been given, that has been placed towards you. It's the, it's the power that's accomplished all of these things. And now it will work in your life as well. So why do we despair? Why do we look elsewhere? I wonder that. What, what, if, there, if this is true, if this power is out there, why would we look to our own strength to accomplish the things we feel like we need to accomplish in this life? Why would, why would we do that? Why would we look to the things that we often look to, the idols that we move into the center of our lives and, 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 and give our, our full allegiance, thinking that they're going to bring benefit to us and provide for our needs, and they always fail? Why would we look to those things when this power has been made available? Which leads us to the second question. Who is it for? Who is this power for? And the answer is in verse 19. It's toward us who believe. Toward us who believe. Now some of you who are part of this congregation, or maybe you come sometimes, you're kind of in this seeking journey. You're in this this questioning phase. You're wondering if you want to step into some sort of relationship with God as um, connected to the person of Jesus Christ and you're wrestling with who Jesus is and you're asking yourself, you know, does this fit me? Am I part of this thing? Do I want to be part of this thing? And I want to lay out for you clearly what it means to sort of cross that line. Um, and, 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 and this is what it is here. It's, it's, a, it's a definitional thing. It's, it's those who believe. And in the very beginning of this prayer, Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith. There, the line is crossed when we place our faith, our trust, in the person of Jesus Christ. So you say, well, how could I know if this power is for me? And the test is the test of faith. Have you placed your trust, your faith, in the person of Jesus Christ. We often talk about Jesus Christ being Lord, the Master of all, and Savior, the one who gave Himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. All that we've done to separate ourselves from God. And so, the question is, have we placed our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And if that's true of us, then this power, Paul says, is toward us because we are those who believe. Now, another way of talking about those who believe is to call them the church. Those who believe are the church. And I find this remarkable as well, that not only is this power for those who believe, but it's present with such force that Paul can refer to us as the very body of Christ. The, the, the actuating force underneath the head. This power is so present in the church that we can be referred to as the body of Christ, which is a remarkable thing. 
we're a nice group gathered here together, and we're trying in life, but it would be, we would be hard-pressed to stand up and say, well, we deserve to be called the body of Christ, right? I just think about this last week. It's probably been a hard week for a lot of us. I wonder how many of the Ten Commandments we have collectively broken over this last week, right? Uh, probably we could find just about every one of them broken in some way in our community. And so if you ask the question, you know, do they look like the body of Christ? Um, have they earned their position as the body of Christ? The answer is probably going to be no. But Paul says, because of God's decision, because of God's choice, we are, in fact, the body of Christ. And listen to this, verse 22, And he put all things under his feet and gave him Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body. If you look in the mirror to try to answer the question who you are, you'll never be able to answer it. But if you look to Christ, you'll be able to answer it. If you look to Paul's words here, you'll be able to answer it. You are the body of Christ. And this incredible power has been given to you to take up residence in you. It's reckless of God on some level. When I was, well, my brother's uh, six years older than me, and when he got his driver's license, my dad had purchased an Oldsmobile Cutlass, 1972. And it was 350 cubic inches. It's like a muscle car. And my dad allowed my 16-year-old brother to drive the Oldsmobile Cutlass around. And that was just too much power. Too much power. He wasn't, he wasn't ready for it. And so, of course, within a short while, he... Uh, broke the motor mount. Now, how do you break a motor mount on a car like that? What you do is you put your foot on the brake and then you floor it so that you can pop your foot off the brake and then shoot off the line, right? Well, if you hold it that way too long, it breaks the motor mount. So we knew what he had done because the motor mount was broken and and that's what happens. So my dad, um, six years later, when I got my license, just previous to me getting my license, he bought, guess what? A Volkswagen Rabbit Diesel. Now, if you remember those cars at all, like, seriously, on the freeway, you had to downshift just to get up the hill. Um, they were the most gutless uh, automobiles on the road. And so my dad had wisened up, and uh, when it came time for me to drive a car, that's what I got to drive. But God apparently didn't get that message, because he's given us the power. All of this is resident in us. He's given us the power. Um, that's what it says. And so we need to hear this. God's power is in you. It's for you. It's towards you. You are the body. You are the body of Christ. And when we talk about the power being in you, it matters how we define that word you. If you're a good American individualist, when I say that, you think, oh, it's in me. What I think Paul is talking about here, though, is the power of God being resident in the community, the church. Look with me in verse 18. Having the eyes of your, that word's plural, hearts enlightened, that you, plural, may know what is the hope to which he has called you, plural, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, plural, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us, plural, 
who believe. And so the power of God, when we think of the power of God being with us or in us, we need to think of it as a community thing. The power of God is in the community of the church. And so we can't find it merely just in one individual. Oftentimes it's, it's the bringing together of the community in the church where the power exists and where we see it manifest. And I think we often miss the power of God because we're running individualistically. Just like there are good American heritage taught us to do. But if we want to see God's power manifest, then we've got to open ourselves, open our hearts to relationship with others. And it's in the outworking of community where we're sharing life together, grappling with life's problems together, opening our lives to one another, that God's power is most strongly manifest. So we don't want to miss this power. And so some of us need to get into that relationship. We need to get into that relationship so we can see um, God's power at work in the community of faith. So what kind of power is it? It's, it's amazingly strong. Who's it for? It's for those who believe. And then thirdly, what can we expect of it? And the simple answer is we can expect great things. We can expect great things because we are the body of Christ. So the same things that happen to Christ are going to happen to us. What happened to him will happen to us. We will be raised, overcome death, We will be seated, the Bible says we get to share in his authority, and we will be established. In other words, just as Christ takes his right place in the universe, we will find our right place in the universe as well. We will take up our right place. Don't you, you always feel like you just don't quite fit in this world. Like you just can't quite, haven't settled in to where you're supposed to be and who you're supposed to be. And that's going to go away one day because we will be established under Christ, under the Father, in our right place. And we will be, take up our role as caretakers, as stewards, as worshipers in this world in, in perfection. And this will happen when God brings his strong power to bear on the world. When Christ returns and all the things that have already happened sort of behind the veil, the veil will be opened up and it will all be manifest perfectly. And I, if you're like me, I long for God's strong power you know, in, in my life. There are a lot of problems that I'm in the middle of, and my prayers are often, God, would you just fix this circumstance? Would you just make it different? You, you, you ask those prayers sometimes. You, you have a relational situation, or you, you've got a financial situation, you've got a work situation, and the prayer is, God, would you just make it different? Would you bring your strong power to bear on this circumstance and change it completely for me? We hunger for that strong power. We long for God's strong power to to just break through this world. And I find myself frustrated because it doesn't happen oftentimes in the way that I would want. And then I know, too, that my my wants are confused because of idolatries in my heart and sin in my heart and my inability to discern what I really need. And so I'm asking God for things. God, would you bring your strong power to bear on my life? And those are not the things that I actually need, even though I think I do. So there's a kind of a messiness, and, and I wish God would just break in sometimes. But what, what Paul's talking about in this passage is, 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 I think you could characterize as God's soft power that we experience and we know right now. Jesus will come back one day, you know, on the white horse, and it will be all strong power. 
but what he's done so far as he's gone to the cross. The disciples wanted him to step up and overthrow the governing authorities and establish his kingdom right then. And he submitted himself to them and he was taken to the cross. And it seems so powerless, but as we can attest even to this day, that was the most powerful thing, the soft power of Jesus to go to the cross and bring salvation for many. And we still, we still can't get away from the amazing soft power of the cross. It still kind of casts a shadow over the world. Christian and non-Christian has this amazing event, this powerful event that has shaping force throughout the world. It's God's soft power. And what Paul is talking about is we have this power. We know his strong power will be brought to bear. And sometimes by his grace, we get to see his strong power change our circumstances in magnificent ways. But oftentimes, it's the soft power of faith and love towards the saints and wisdom and revelation and knowledge of God and the eyes of our hearts being enlightened and hope and focusing on the inheritance These are the kinds of things that transform us right now. And this is the soft power of God. And and remember, Paul wrote this from prison. Paul could have said, God, why don't you bust me out of this jail with your strong power? And maybe he did. But what did God decide to do instead? He gave Paul one of the greatest revelations that we have in the world about the, the grandeur of what it means to be a follower of Christ and the beauty of the church, all while he's sitting in prison. God, break me out. Bring your strong power. I want you to break me out of prison. I don't want to deal with these circumstances anymore. What does God do? Paul, you're chosen, adopted, beloved, sealed. Pray for these people over here that they would have their the eyes of their hearts enlightened so they might see all of this too. Where in your life are you pursuing God's strong power and missing the soft power? The changes in your perspective, the the ability to love unlovable people, faith, the presence of God, sometimes hard circumstances are the very best because they drive us deeper into the presence of God, to knowledge of God. And and if that's the goal of our existence anyway, isn't that the real power? That's the real power, to be driven more deeply into a knowledge and uh, understanding of the presence of God and the love of God. I don't know if Paul would have written this had he been busted out of prison, right? And we might have not had this. Purely hypothetical. So where is it that you need the soft power of God to be applied to your life? Lord, would you help us to seek out your your soft power. We know your strong power is there and and sometimes you break through and you change our circumstances and it's awesome and we give you praise and glory. But sometimes we sit in prison and you apply your soft power, your, your crucified Christ power 
we didn't think this is what we needed, but it is actually what we needed. We needed to sit in prison so we could, we could have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. We could know you and the hope, the inheritance, and the contours of your power. We could be filled with love for the saints and faith. Would you meet us this week even in whatever prison we find ourselves with your soft power, which is no less powerful, sometimes more sweet. And would you fill us as a congregation with your power that it might spill over into the community nearby and glimpses of the glory of Christ would be caught on our faces and in our hands and our words and you would be honored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.